All right, brother. So this week we're going to talk about a cultural phenomenon that is oftentimes credited as being one of the sort of uh, emerging bastions of feminism in the 90s. We're talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No, no, no. Not the good one. We're talking about the movie that inspired the good one. This week we're talking about Christy Swanson and Luke motherfucking Perry and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which actually was written by Joss Whedon, but we'll get into that a little bit later because apparently he wasn't happy with the film. But yeah. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Sue, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who cannot fucking get over the fact that the United States men's team did not qualify for the World Cup. What the fuck was that? This is Austin Hayden Smith. I'm a philosopher, actor, writer, producer, blah, 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 blah. And I have to say, I'm not a huge, you know, football fan, soccer fan, but I did ref it when I was younger and I do enjoy the sport my sister played. And growing up in Southern Orange County, women's soccer in particular was fucking huge. We we have a lot of the players that have played on the national team and at the high level that are from Southern California because it's really popular there. So I pay attention sometimes, right? And it actually kind of – it stung a little bit, dude. It stung a little bit. I'm very upset. No, like literally I was yeah. like bummed. Like I'm, I'm actually still bummed. Like I will be – because also too like – the World Cup, man, it only happens every four years. You only get so many fucking World Cups in yeah. your lifetime. And it's just like... I know. I, I listened to uh, Bob just, Lee, who I guess has covered a lot of World Cup events for for a very long time from ESPN. And then I can't remember the um, the American player's name. It starts with a T, like Twellerson or Twillerson. He's a former player. What's uh, his name? Twellman. Yeah, that's it. Twellman. And he was going off. He's like, listen, there needs to be a radical fix of the entire system from the top to the bottom. Because he says basically right now it's a pay-to-play system. We probably got like the – one of the greatest players of – you know, like basically, you know how like when LeBron was like 18 and everyone was already like this dude's going to be one of the greatest like players in the NBA ever? Like – no, fuck Josie Altador. No, Josie Altador is never going to be anything more than mediocre. I'm talking about Christian Pulisic is like 18 years old, already by far the best player on the team. Best prospect like the United States has ever mm. had. And we're and he's and he's and we're not going to. Is he the guy that scored the goal, like, the little dude, ugh. number 10? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I thought Josie Altador was. He's playing for Bruce. He's starting for Borussia Dortmund. Like, that's it. Like, 18 an American at 18 is starting for Borussia Dortmund Wait, I don't know in the Bundesliga. Oh, a German, That's insane. German team. Okay, I yeah. got you. Um, I thought Josie Altador, when he was younger, everyone was like, he's supposed to be like the second coming. I oh, know, you're thinking of Freddie oh. Adu, Josie Altador. Freddie Adu, like, whatever ever, happened like, to him. Just like that. Yeah, he was shit. That's right. what well, if him. you guys didn't know, this is actually not a sports podcast, but Kier is a huge football slash soccer fan. And the U.S. Americans uh, men's soccer team did not make it to the World Cup as they lost to Trinidad and Tobago by a score of 2-1, to one, which is a paltry result for a team that is supposed to be at least to make it to the goddamn World Cup and that spends a shitload of money on their soccer program. So it was pretty appalling. Anyway, this week in review, we're going to be talking about Blade Runner 2049. In trending topic, we are going to have our first ever Oscar <laughs> buzz draft. What is that? You'll find out. And then in the main segment, we'll be talking about the 1992 film Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, Austin. So in honor of Blade Runner 2049, I think this week's 
rating system is going to be, would this movie make Ryan Gosling crack up? And to what degree would it or make him crack up? would it make him up? eat because... his cereal? Ooh. Ooh, Considering we have a, a mutual acquaintance in, in Ryan McHenry who came up with a brilliant meme, yeah. what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It feels. It feels. It just feels weird because obviously, uh, obviously, uh, if you don't know, uh, there was a meme for a long time called um, "Ryan Gosling won't eat his cereal," made by a uh, a guy I used to know called uh, Ryan McHenry, who unfortunately died of cancer a couple of years ago. Uh, so yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know if maybe I feel a little. Now bit I will say this: that, Did you ever you see know, like... how Gosling actually sort of paid tribute? To, to when he died. It was yeah, really sweet no, for people that, that don't yeah. know. So for years, yeah. Ryan McHenry was making these memes and it was based on any time like Gosling would scoff or like turn his face away or close his mouth or like smack his hand away. And then what uh, what Ryan would do is he would superimpose like his own hand over the TV screen. Like, Well, no, it was li- literally like he would film the TV screen and he would just bring <laughs> yeah. his hand like With a spoonful of cereal. And then, and then and, and he would time it so that Ryan, so it looked like like that Gosling was like reacting to yeah, the spoon. Yeah, exactly. And then so uh, Ryan battled with cancer for a few years and it seemed like everything was going well and then it came back with a vengeance and it took his life pretty quickly. And even though Ryan Gosling had never worked with Ryan McHenry, after... When he'd never really been like that into like the whole movie. Uh-uh, he never either. responded. Like, I think he yeah, kind he, of. I mean, he's kind yeah. of aloof in in some ways. He doesn't really have like a, a big social media presence. He doesn't do that kind of thing anyway. He's not involved in that culture, right? In the online culture as much. So it was kind of a big surprise. Uh, and this meme got really popular. And so then after Ryan McHenry passed away, Ryan Gosling actually recorded just him sitting down. And it was on Vine too. All of these were Vines. So, you know, six second loops. So mm-hmm. Gosling recorded a quick little Vine of him sitting down, pouring his milk and actually eating his cereal sort of an honor. And it was a pretty, a pretty nice touching moment. So check that shit out. It was a genuinely, like, Ryan was, like, a genuinely really nice, like, Ryan McHenry was, like, a really nice Yeah, everyone dude. who knows like, him, uh, yeah. I'd, occasionally, I'd, have, I'd have coffee with him, you know, when I came through to Glasgow every now and again and, like, got on really nice. Uh, he helped me film one time on one of my shorts, so, you know, he's a really good person, so it was very sad. His girlfriend was responsible so, for me getting um, represented, actually, in Glasgow. So I I auditioned for her. She was she was actually represented, but she was one of the sort of favored clients of our agency. And so I auditioned in front of her and then the head agent. And uh, yeah, so Joanne McGuinness, great little actress in Scotland. All right, so this was this this this. Took well, a, so this are took we are we going to do the serial thing? Uh, okay. Sure, why not? We'll do it. Uh, would Ryan Gosling eat his cereal uh, if you know um, you know that is okay. the rating system for this week? So. Blade Runner 2049 is about Kay, a replicant played by Ryan Gosling, who is a Blade Runner, essentially a detective who hunts down replicants. And while he is dispatching a rogue replicant played by Dave Batista, he stumbles across the bones of a long-dead female replicant. Forensic analysis shows that she has died from a cesarean, which is a big deal because replicants are not supposed to be able to bear children. His boss, played by Robin Wright, fears that this will cause huge problems if people realize replicants could be engineered to reproduce. Kay is given the assignment of hunting down the child and making it quietly disappear. Meanwhile, a business magnate who is played by Jared Leto, who manufactures replicants, also wants to find this child as he sees reproducing replicants as a speedier form of manufacturing. Mm. 
So, yeah, and, yeah, so it kind of goes off on a sort of pot boiler thing, and there's a whole bunch of twists and turns and stuff like that, and, you know, unlike the original Blade Runner, there's actually a fucking plot to this, <laughs> and, you know, there's an arc, and shit happens, and, I mean, like, I've, I've, here's the thing, like, Blade Runner, the original, is a revolutionary aesthetic, like, you know, it's an important cinematic touchstone if nothing else because its design is ingrained into so much of modern sci-fi you know it basically created the cyberpunk subgenre you know it, it predates neuromancer which is the key cyberpunk text by about two years i mean it, it is kind of like it, it is a revolutionary film in a lot of ways but one of the ways that it's not a revolutionary film is in storytelling and plot <laughs> because goddamn nothing fucking happens in that movie. And it's like, and, it, and none of the plot makes any real sense. Harrison Ford is a detective who doesn't do any detecting. He's fucking terrible at his job. All the replicants, anytime he comes, the only way pretty much most of the time he ever finds a replicant is because they just come up to him. And yeah, no, he's, he's pretty fucking, I, I don't know. I, the thing that I've always disliked about Blade Runner is it's a revolutionary aesthetic with a script and story written by what feels like a first year college student who just finished reading Sophie's World. Uh. You know, so I, and basically what I can say about Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> is that it essentially fixes those problems. So you have the this really beautiful aesthetic and an actual fucking plot with a central character who has an arc and he actually has to do some detecting and then shit also kind of like, you know, it, 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 there's twists, there's turns, there's reveals. You know, it's like an actual noir film. One of the things that always pisses me off about when people go, oh, Blade Runner, it's a futuristic noir. It's not a fucking noir because a noir would be written better than that. <laughs> like, it's like a noir would have some fucking plot points and some twists and turns. Um, did you, uh, did you uh, <gasps> at all in the film? I'm like, oh, oh, oh. Any any really. any exhalations no. or inhalations? I mean, I, I, I think it's kind of... I, I think it, the way it relates to the original is I think it's still very much a movie that you kind of bathe in. You kind okay. of bathe in the aesthetic and the mood of it. I mean, it's two hours and 40 minutes long, so it's, it's a slow film. But I have to say the length didn't bother mm. me too much. Um, I enjoyed pretty much... I, I, I liked the movie. It was a... It's funny because I've seen... I've seen quite a bit of stuff that a reaction that kind of reminds me of when people saw Prometheus mm. and, you know, it got so hyped that like then people were kind of like, oh, what the fuck is this? But I would say Blade Runner 2049 actually kind of delivers what you kind of need it to. It delivers the aesthetic and feel and vibe of Blade Runner. But for me, it actually improves on it by having an actual plot that you can kind of get involved in and follow. And I, I think Kay is a more interesting character than Deckard mm. is. I like the fact that Kay, they kind of, they kind of right off the bat, they're like, yep, he's a replicant. So there's none of that bullshit. He's just a replicant. He's a replicant who hunts other replicants. That's an interesting concept because again, I find that far more interesting than who is Deckard a replicant or not a replicant. You know what? I don't really give a fuck if Deckard's a replicant or not. Does it get revealed? You know, it's uh, like, you know finally, because Deckard comes back into this one, right? I mean, I would say if I'm being honest, I walked out of that movie going like, oh, well, they finally put it to rest that Deckard isn't okay. a replicant. And then people are kind of going like, oh, I like how the film like keeps it ambiguous about whether it's still whether Deckard is a replicant or not. I'm like, 
I don't know. To me, that looked like he was not a replicant. I, I, I don't know. I, I, but again, I don't find that interesting. I've never found this, is he a replicant or not? Because to me also, like, in, intrinsically, it's more interesting if it's about a human, you know, if, um, if the original Blade Runner is about a human than if it's about a replicant. Because to me, it's like, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I've never, I've never thought that was, I've never, I've, I've thought it's one of those things where it's that kind of like, Ooh, what does it mean thing where people think where it, it makes people think s- that they're smart because they're questioning it and they're pondering it. But actually I don't think it really means much of anything. Okay, so now I know that you aren't like a huge sci-fi nerd, but I like science fiction. You like a lot, it, actually. but there's a I, difference between someone who really likes science fiction, like myself, who got really obsessed with Russian cosmism for a really long time because of its political oh, okay. and revolutionary possibilities, and someone who's kind of like a sci-fi nerd. You know what I mean? Someone who, you know, probably goes to Trekkie conferences or somebody who kind yeah, of. No, grew- I'm, not, I'm not that, but I will say I'm actually watching Star Trek Discovery at the moment. I used to watch Star Trek as a kid, so you know, I I, I like Star Trek. I like right. a lot of these. Yeah. Things. Okay. So, but my point is, is that I wonder, as someone who is not like a sci-fi nerd, I wonder if you can kind of judge uh, this film in the pantheon of sci-fi movies, and then do that from a perspective that isn't so fanboyish as I think so many people have been, where they're saying, oh my god, this is one of the best films of the year, this is a perfect um, sequel, sometimes maybe the sequel is even better than the original, and so like people like Peter Bradshaw that are like just hailing this film as this radical triumph, which seems a bit fanboyish, it seems a little bit more kind of within that that sci-fi nerd thing, and by the way, I'm not shitting on people who are sci-fi nerds, I'm just saying that Kier has a little bit of a different disposition than, than someone who's kind of immersed, kind of soaked into that type of ideology. Well, I would say that I'm, I my interest in genre is always when is always about the genre being good. I I don't really there's very little that I like purely because of the aesthetic or kind of um, stereotypical elements right. that they have. So it's like you know you'll have people who'll say things like. I'll love any film that has a dragon in it or something like that. And I'm kind of like, no, (laughs) if it's a good film that has a dragon in it, then I'll like it. It's like, I don't, the the dragon itself does not make me like something. So just like that, it being science fiction does not make me like it. It has to still be good, you know? So, I mean, I mean, I, I've always feel felt like I've come more on the side of like hard sci-fi as opposed to fantasy sci-fi. So it's like the, the classic dichotomy would be say star Trek as opposed to star Wars. I mean, I think like for me, I always come down more on the side of, Hey, I, I like people talking about ethical questions in a room, you know, where, you know, try to figure things out rather than just wielding swords made of light and shooting. Yeah, yeah. Laser and so guns. you would be less interested in something so so it's really the fantasy element of sci-fi that you know, you're interested in like hard science like you're interested in what technology and what the future of societies would become or could become or like alternate societies if it's based on like like hard science or technology more so than like alternate universes and alternate dimensions well i i think one of the things that i tend to like about science fiction is i tend to like how it reflects our own modern world in terms of 
you know, analogies or metaphors. So one of my favorite books of all time is The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. And so that's where, like, the aesthetic of sci-fi is very broad in terms of what he... So it's like, hey, they just take rocket ships to Mars or something like that. Like, the actual science of it is fairly minimal and stupid, but it's more there as a, it's more there to create large form metaphors. So for instance, there's uh, a story called the other foot where um, it's a, about a planet that's entirely inhabited by black people who said, you know what? We're sick of Jim Crow. We're going to go form our own planet somewhere. Right. And uh, so a bunch of, so then they have a, a thing where after a nuclear war happens, there's a bunch of white people who come to the planet asking for help. And then they have to decide, should we treat them? Should we enforce a sort of Jim Crow law on these white people who came, <laughs> you know, looking for help? So, and again, so stuff like that, those kind of ethical, moral, Pondries, the way we think about the way it reflects our our own society because i mean it, it, it doesn't make any sense that a bunch of black people during the 60s would have gone like hey we're gonna get in a rocket and go to another planet <laughs> that doesn't make any sense the ethical question is what's interesting about that so right. i you know I, it, it's not necessarily so for me it's not really about sort of cool technology or weird you know lasers and shit like that it's about kind of like the moral and ethical ideas okay and, so you, you wanted know, it to symbolism be symbolism yeah it. you want it to be grounded in some sort of real material concerns yeah so then i like a tactile feel to my sci-fi Okay, so then, how do you think Blade Runner 2049 holds up to the sort of history of sci-fi? Is it one of the better sci-fi films, at least I mean, of recent I years? I think, I, think, I think one of the difficulties is, is that it's dealing with an iconic aesthetic, and it does a very good job of recreating that aesthetic. But it also means that it's hard for it to stand on its own because it is inevitably an appendage. Now, what I will say is... I actually think you could go to Blade Runner 2049 having never seen Blade Runner and it would still work as a film on its own. Mm. Like, because I think you could take as read some of the narrative elements that come from having Harrison Ford come back into it. And a lot of the references that to the previous film could simply work as characters talking about things that have happened in the past, you know, because it's not like noir films don't talk about, don't have plot points about people, thing interactions that happened 20 years earlier that are only right. referenced. So, I mean, I think you could actually watch Blade Runner 249 and enjoy it as its own sort of thing. The only thing is I, I, I do think, you know, I, I think that the only thing that'll str- that might make it struggle to stand on its own as an iconic piece of cinema is that it's still exists very much within a an aesthetic that was created long before and has become very iconic since. But I think it utilizes it very well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to have to. I mean, studios won't back a film this big unless it's going to be able to have such a, a massive, broad appeal to audiences. Because not everybody that is going to be, you know, under the age of 30 is going to have seen the original Blade, Blade Runner. You can't just... You know, it can't just simply be reliant on it. They have to recognize that, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the audience are going to come into this blind just because Gosling or just because it's something big and new in sci-fi. Or maybe they saw Star Wars and they like, ooh, something big and flashy with effects or something like that. Who knows? So they have to realize that they're going to be able to pull in millions and millions of dollars from, you know, first time viewers to this aesthetic world. Well, and, you know, for anyone who's into the philosophical and the deeper meanings of it, then, you know, there is, there's things like, for instance, um, Ryan Gosling's character is a reference to Kafka and the main character from the trial, um, who is referred to as K and then Joseph K and his, well, so the character's called K in the book, the character's called Joseph K. And so when, um, 
K in Blade Runner is given a name. He's given the name Joe. And so if you know ah. what the if you know what if you know about what the character in the trial represents, you know, then you know kind of a little bit about what K represents in the film. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so does Ryan Gosling eat his cereal? Ryan Gosling eats his cereal. <laughs> you know, I I think actually yeah. this film because I've I've been saying for months and months and months I thought this film was going to suck. Yeah, so, you have been. And I I actually think one of the reasons that it didn't suck for me is because it took the things I liked about Blade Runner and built on the things that I didn't like and kind of fixed those problems for me. So I think I kind of preferred it as a viewing experience to watching the original, which I have now watched. I've watched the original Blade Runner at least 10 times. Every time I convince myself this is going to be the time I finally get it and I finally really like it. And all I end up doing is watching it and thinking like, I really like looking at this. Well, maybe you need to read Sophie's World before you watch it and then that'll enhance your viewing experience. (laughs) I literally said that because that's like the only (laughs) philosophy book I could think of. That's the only one I've like ever read. So it's like, maybe it'll work for you, brother. Okay, so for our trending topic, we're going to be trying something a little bit different here. We are doing what I am referring to as the Oscar buzz draft. Now, what this is, is Austin and me are going to take turns drafting films. And the idea is... Is it just films or is it individuals as well? No, it's films. Okay, so we're not going to worry about actor, actress, stuff like that. So ideally what you want is you want to pick films that are going to get the maximum amount of Oscar nominations. Okay. So when the Oscar nominations come out in February, whoever, the Oscar nominations are cumulative. So however many, so, so however many Oscar nominations each film gets accumulates and then you get an overall score and whoever gets the highest score wins. So it's it's not just one film each. It has to be how many how many films eight. are we? We're drafting eight? eight films. We're each drafting eight films. Okay, Jesus. All right. How, okay, I'm ready to rock. So you haven't done your research, have you? I mean, I've got a list in front of me. I got I got my list too, man. I got my list. Okay. So here's the thing. Okay, uh, I don't have a coin on me. Do you have a coin? Uh, I do have a coin. All right, I'm ready. It is a five. Well, here I'll do a bigger coin. Okay, I got a two euro piece. Okay. Cool. All right, and so I guess the sign with the the side with the two on it will be heads, and then the side with the little eagle on it will be tails. All right, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna that's go with the uh, well the the and eagle the fuck two. the eagle fucking failed me because the United States couldn't qualify for the World Cup, so I'm gonna go with the two. Okay, so you're choosing heads. The I'm two. gonna go with the deuce. All right, all right. So the eagle. Ugh. It's so the that eagle. means Austin gets to go first. So that means that I get to pick the film, the you first film. You get to pick film. your first film. So when you, so we once once a film is picked, it's off the board. So you know we each get. So we're we're, we're building a team. We're building a team of films that okay. cumulatively will get us the most Oscar nominations. All right. So it's either gonna be Dunkirk or Blade Runner. Well, you have to pick a film, Austin. You uh, get, so you I'm gonna choose you. Dunkirk. Oh, fuck. That was my top. That was of my course. top pick as well. That's everyone's top pick because it's going to get sound. It's going to get like visual shit. It's, uh, but Nolan be... is campaigning for that too, man. He wants that Oscar nomination. Director. It's going to get best picture. <laughs> okay. So the first pick, well, so the second pick in the first ever Oscar buzz draft. Call me by your name. 
Okay. Call me by Which your name, huh? I think is going to gather some steam. I think Army Hammer is going to get an Oscar nomination for it. I think Michael Stuhlbarg. I could see 86-year-old James Ivory getting uh, a screenplay nomination. I think um, I, I think it's going to get a directing nomination. I think it'll get nominated for Best Film. So call me by your name. That is my number one pick. Obviously, my number one pick would have been Dunkirk. But, you know, what can you do? Okay, this is interesting because... Um, I think Blade Runner will get nominated for between three and four, maybe five. Um, but then again, there's Shape of Water, which could get quite a few. And then there's, um, there's, oh God, what's it called? It's the one with Gary Oldman. Um, uh, The Darkest Hour. Yeah, The Darkest Hour. That, um, I'm going to go, Darkest Hour. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Blade Runner. Twenty forty nine. That's a that's a bold one to take this high. No, I think it's gonna get uh, a a best film. I think it's gonna get some visual effects. It's gonna get cinematography. And it might get sound. See, I I have a theory. And it could get acting. I have a theory that I'm gonna throw out here that, that now you've you've picked it now, so you can't you can't go back if you don't if you don't like my theory. But I think I do think Deacons will get nominated for um, for best cinematography. However, I don't think he's gonna win. Cause I, cause I don't think Blade Runner twenty forty nine is going to get nominated for best film. I would have maybe thought something else if it had done better at the box office, but it did not have a great opening weekend. Um, and I think, and also, and like cinematography winners, it a film is almost never won sin best cinematography without being nominated for best picture as well. And I think Dunkirk's going to take best cinematography. Mm, interesting, but we're just talking about nominations here. We're not talking about victories, right? Yeah, but I don't think I don't think Blade Runner is going to get nominated for Best Picture. But Blade Runner, I do think, will get quite a few technical awards. So I don't think it's a bad choice. I'm just not sure yeah. I would have taken it, it this it'll time. It'll get it'll definitely get technical awards, and it could. Who knows? I mean, people might want to give Gosling something. I don't know. I am gonna go next with The Shape of Water. Ooh, it yeah, was, see. Yeah. It was close. It was close. I almost went with The Darkest Hour, but I decided to go Shape of Water. See, here's my thing about The Darkest Hour. I don't feel like it's going to have any love on the technical side. It'll have love on acting, maybe directing, and maybe best picture. Um, so that's, that's – we're looking at three to four – also, I think there's kind of a bit of a pushback against the classic Oscar film. I don't think you've seen a lot of I mean, like Darkest Hour is the sort of thing that, say, in like the mid 2000s or in the 90s would have been a locked in Best Picture nominee. But I yeah. don't think people are that keen on that anymore. But since they have so many fucking Best Picture nominations, yeah. it's likely to get in there. I think it'll get into the Best Picture nominate. I don't think it'll be as high as people think it is. As, as yeah. people think. So what's your what's your third choice? Oh, I'm going the Darkest Hour. <laughs> Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour. Well, I mean, Gary Oldman's gonna get a Best Actor nomination. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's not a it's it, it's certainly not a bad one. Okay, so my next one, I'm going with. Hmm, this is a little bit tricky. Um, I'm sort of fluctuating. But I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with the post, which is the yeah. Steven Spielberg Pentagon Papers film that is coming out late. But you should never count Steven Spielberg out in terms because he just like he prints Oscar nominations, especially yeah. when he's doing prestige. Like Lincoln, Munich, they all come out late. They always do well in nominations. So 
I'm going to go with the post. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with something super risky right now. And I don't know if I should do it this high up, but I'm just afraid that you're going to outsmart me on this one. Um, I don't know if it has a title yet, but I'm going to go with PTA's next film. I think it's called The Phantom Thread. Has it been named that yeah, officially? Yeah, I think it's called The Phantom Thread. That's what I'm going to put it down for at the moment. Okay. Um, I... I mean, like, the only thing with that one, why I didn't pick it higher, is because, you know, I mean, Inherent Vice wasn't a, a big Oscar draw. The Master, outside of a few acting nominees, I don't think was a particularly big Oscar draw. So I'm not sure he's as big an Oscar draw as people think he is. Yeah, he might not be, but I think simply because this is going to be supposedly Daniel Day-Lewis's last film, that there's yeah. going to be an element of, like, forced hype around the film all right now i am gonna go with three billboards outside ebbing missouri which one audience at tiff is that oh that's the, yeah that's the new um that's the new uh martin mcdonough uh film which stars yeah. which i think i think is going to i think francis mcdorm has got a very good shot at a best actress nomination that's what i, I heard, think yeah. um i think uh sam rockwell could get best supporting and, you know, I also think, like, there's precedence for, for you know, like, In Bruges got nominated for Best Screenplay. Um, and, I mean, like I said, it won, audience, it won the Audience Award. And as far as I, I've been told, it's got, like, a lot of, it's got a lot of people kind of feeling a sort of um, resonance in terms of, you know, uh, the state of America at the moment, and it feels very of the moment. So I don't know. I could, I could, I, I think it could actually surprise people and pull out quite a few nominations in the end. Okay. Um, so my fifth is going to be disaster artist. Okay. I think, I think it'll get maybe two acting noms. I think it might get a directorial nom and it might even get like an, uh, a best adaptation nom. And then who knows if it'll get a film nom, but I think for sure it'll get like three to four. See, my only thing with the disaster artist is that, it's A24, and I don't know if they have the resources to market. Uh, if because I know because I think they're going to want to market Lady Bird, um, and I'm not sure they're going to have the resources to market more than one. Mm. So I don't know how well that's going to do in turn. I don't know how I don't know how much money they can put into it. Is my it was my only kind of like thing against it. Right. Uh, okay. I am going to go with a super, super safe choice here, and I am going to pick Battle of the Sexes because I think Oscars love Emma Stone, um, and I think it's like a super crowd-pleasing, easy choice. And uh, this is totally a this-had-Oscar-buzz type movie where, like, you know, 10 years down the line, it's like a punchline of people going like, this was, everyone said this was going to get, like, Oscars. But I kind of think, I, this, this is my kind of safe, crowd-pleasing bet. Okay. Um, gosh, I don't even know at this point. Um, I'm thinking, I'm just going to go with Marshall. Marshall, that's a, I don't even have that on my list. Huh, okay. Um, I've seen the trailer and I own almost nothing else about it. Yeah, um, I just know that in terms of for acting, it's getting lo- a lot of love for Chadwick Boseman. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to take a risk here. Like, this is, this is, this might seem like a really odd one. I'm going to go with Get Out. 
Oh no, you know what? I, I don't think that's an odd one. I think that's a good one. Because I think I think I also think if you look across the board at what we're talking about, aside from the one that you just picked, this is a very, very white list. So they add like if they don't want more of the Oscars so white thing, I feel like I feel like there's an impetus for them to really want to take get out. Not to mention, um, you know, um, Bloomhouse actually has some precedent because they also produce Whiplash, so they have actually mounted some successful Oscar campaigns in the past. So, you know, I, I, I could see it happening. I could see it taking up a sort of genre spot. I, I could, you know, in a, especially in a, in, a, in a 10 nominee potential race, I exactly. see Get Out as being able to sneak in. I think it could definitely get an original screenplay nomination. Uh, there's a couple of things I could see it picking up. So Get Out is my kind of outside choice. Um, yeah, I actually, I think that's a good one. Um, what about Mudbound? You gonna take Mudbound? Yeah. I don't trust Netflix at the moment. I don't think, like, I, I don't, I don't think the Oscars want to award Netflix, but I will say, again, it's one of those ones where you think the Oscars might want to kind of like take it on just purely because of the fact that it's not the most diverse year of films they've got going. So they might, there might be uh, a sort of a growing movement to try and award a a very black focused film with a a, a female black filmmaker. Yeah. Um, Okay. Hmm. I am going to jump on board now with, I'm going to go with Lady Bird. Are you going to pick Lady Bird? Okay. Yeah, the Greta Gerwig film, which I feel like that puts us in direct competition with each other because mm-hmm. um, it's, a, again, A24, whether, you know, who where are they going to put their money? Are they going to put it behind the disaster artist? Are they going to put it behind Lady Bird? But, like, critics seem to adore this film, which isn't necessarily a great measurement for that, but I do feel like it could potentially be, like, the Juno of this year, but we'll just have to see. Well, see, that's I was thinking the big sick might be that so i don't know now i'm thinking this big sick could be my last choice but i don't think it's gonna get i think big sick will have some love at like golden globes you mm. know um in uh because they do the the divisions between the comedic and the well, dramatic my other thinking with lady bird is that the oscars love saoirse ronan so i think there's a very good chance she'll get a nomination out of it yeah okay so i am going to go either with um, okay, I'm going to do something kind of weird just because uh, it was his directorial debut and people seem to love him, uh, Sorkin's Molly's Game. See, I was thinking Molly's Game was actually my next on the board. I was going to take Molly's Game next because, again, he's he seems like an obvious one for a screenplay nomination. Chastain's doing a big role. I mean, I think there's a lot of room for there to be some nominations in yeah. there. So I t- and, some, I, and sometimes, you know how the Academy works, it's a... A lot of people think that it really is that it's like in a vacuum, but it's not. This is um, an industry award, and Sorkin is obviously loved in the industry. So there might be a sense in which he's getting a due. You know, even though this is his directorial debut, they might be kind of like, ah, we're giving you this because of your status as being Aaron Sorkin. You never know. So I'm I'm in a bit of a bind here. I'm in a debate. It's like, should I take? Uh, should I take um, one that's a kind of outside chance that I think it might 
possibly get something or do I take a kind of fun fuck you I'll 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 do this cuz there's a chance it might get a dumb award kind of a kind of one what should I do what's what's the risk reward for each is what, what's the upside know. for each I feel which like one has a bigger get, upside but I feel like both could get shut out <laughs> well which one if if the if either of them does get it which one has the bigger upside like would one possibly up for three and the other one only for no two? no i don't i i think both of them will most likely i think get one. one of them could be up for a few awards one of them is definitely only gonna get nominated for one okay uh go for the one that could be up for a few awards all right i'm gonna go with the the florida project yeah i thought about that one too yeah yeah I think Willem Dafoe seems like he might have a really good shot at getting the Best Supporting yeah. Actor nomination. Um, but I, I think it's, like, too indie and too idiosyncratic for it to get much of anything else. I suppose maybe a screenplay nomination screenplay is the nom, sort of yeah. thing that it could. That's it. But the thing that I came close to doing was I almost went with Transformers the last night for Best Special Effects. <laughs> Is that just because you have this strange Because, like, the Transformers movies Bay. always get nominated for Best Special Effects. That's why. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay, so if so, the Florida Project gets shut out, I'll feel really stupid for not picking Transformers. But then how great are you going to feel if it comes in with, like, one or two and it ends up pushing you over the edge? Okay, so this is an interesting one. So, uh, Austin, your team for this year's Oscar race is Dunkirk, Blade Runner 2049, Darkest Hour, The Phantom Thread, Disaster Artist, Marshall, Mudbound, and Molly's Game. Wow, there's a lot yeah. of M's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and mine is Call Me By Your Name, The Shape of Water, The Post, Three Board, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Battle of the Sexes, Get Out, Lady Bird, and The Florida Project. I just met this girl named Buffy. I'm Pike. Pike isn't a name, it's a fish. I liked her, even though she seemed kind of flaky. But, as it turns out... You have been chosen, Buffy. To do what? To stop the vampires. Does Elvis talk to you? And things started getting weird around here. Are we having a nightmare? You threw a knife at my head. And you caught it. She was the one person I could really count on. Kill him a lot. Hi. Hi. What are you doing here? What am I doing here? I'm saving your butt. That is a bad guy. Can we go, please? The Slayer is unmasked. Let's finish it. I think this relationship has potential. Hi. How's it going? You're obviously having a bad hair day. If she can just get rid of those other guys in her life. All right, so this week for the main segment, we are going to be talking about the 1992 horror comedy film Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Basically, Buffy the Vampire Slayer follows a popular teenage girl played by Christy Swanson, who was one of my huge crushes when I was a little boy, who starts to develop um, these powers uh, that are felt as um, menstrual pains that give her a sensitivity to know that when vampires are around... Uh, that's when she needs to get into action and start killing vampires. And it turns out that she's in a long line of, uh, a long successive line of vampire slayers that are sort of called historically that belong to some order or something. It's never really explained. But anyway, she's part of the the history of vampire slayers, and she is the new iteration of vampire slayers. And Donner, Donald Sutherland comes along, and he's kind of like this 
creepy looking older dude, but he basically is her mentor that trains her and teaches her to fight in the ways of the vampire slayer. And she uses stakes. Listen, if you've seen the fucking TV show, you get the idea. It's the same thing, well, except it's not I as feel dark. Like if you've and read a, the title, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, it's a little more comedic. It's not as dark. And, um, yeah, and then Luke Perry, he kind of is this lackey guy who's not involved at the high school, and then he gets involved with Buffy because she kind of is a freak, and he's kind of a freak, so they end up becoming freaks together, and they find each other because she gets alienated from the high school because she's all weird now as she's going around killing vampires because now she doesn't want to get involved with all the bullshit prom planning and all that other stupid shit, but, um... Yeah, that's pretty much it. So then she has to fight. And then, obviously, Rutger Hauer comes in just enjoying the shit out of his role as the head, main, evil, bad guy, vampire. Uh, we also have Paul Rubens, otherwise known as Pee Wee Herman, who plays the sort of right-hand man, bad guy, vampire. And Hilary Swank actually is in this as uh, one of the popular teenage girls that alienates Buffy because she's a bitch. Hey, don't forget about Ben Affleck and his amazing role as basketball player number 10. That's right. Ben Affleck, he, is, he, uh, he gets disgusted when one of the uh, basketball players on the other team turns into a vampire and he like actually hands over the ball to him because he's just I mean, it says beat. It says he was uncredited, but I'm like, dude had a line. Like he was like, I'm, I'm not really sure why somebody shut out Ben Affleck in this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's in it. And then so too is David Arquette, who actually plays one of my favorite roles in the movie. Also, um, Seth Green is very, very briefly in it as uh, you can literally catch a moment of him when, a sc- when the camera pans across and then he is, you know, when she goes outside at the prom and there's a bunch of vampires standing there, she's yeah. the vampire that he kicks in the face. So he's the vampire that she kicks in the face. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So you see him I from behind. Not... Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I did not know that. And then right. Ricky Lake also plays a waitress. Like people, there's like so many like people who are uncredited in this movie popping up. I know, it's amazing. I mean, it's actually got a pretty big cast for the Steven time. Stephen so Root is the um, Stephen Root is the principal. Yeah. So I mean, in the '90s, you know, especially in '92, Christy Swanson was she was quite a thing. You know. Um, so, and then Luke Perry, of course, Beverly Hills, 90210, Rutger Hauer is a legend, Donald, Donald Sutherland is a legend, Pee Wee Herman, obviously he had his little downfall after masturbating in a theater, but this, I remember, was one of the first films that I had seen in, him in after um, him kind of getting in trouble for that. Hilary Swank is in it, David Arquette is in it, like you say, Stephen Root is in it. Apparently, apparently Thomas Jane is in this, too. I did not notice him at all. Zeph is his character yeah. name. I'm trying to remember who that was. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to go back and see. He's probably not all big and ripped and good looking. He's probably kind of like young and nerdy and scrawny. So we didn't yeah. recognize him. Tom, Thomas Jane, too, is like one of those guys who I think was around for like 10 years before he got and like just showing up as like one line parts for like a good solid decade before he ever got anywhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. Though, exactly. Like ben Affleck's kind of like that as well, because like Ben Affleck was in The Voyage of the Mimi. What? I don't even Did know you ever what see the is. Voyage of the Mimi? No. It was like this like um laser disc thing that we got shown in like elementary school that like taught you about like the sea and science and everything. And he was like th- and it was like the whole thing was set around this ship called the Mimi. And Ben Affleck, and the, the whole, like, thing is, like, this little kid, I think he goes and, like, I think his, like, uncle runs the ship or something like that, and he goes and, like, goes on the ship with his uncle or something like that. But Ben Affleck is the little kid, like, when he's, like, 12. No shit. I did not know that. Ben Affleck was also an MTV VJ at one point in his life. Holy shit, man. Was that before or after he grabbed Hillary Burton's boob? Um, he grabbed whose boob? 
oh, have you not heard about this? This is the big controversy because he's come out like condemning Harvey Weinstein. But then people are like, hey, remember that time when you sexually assaulted Hillary Burton when uh, she was on MTV? She used to be an MTV VJ back in oh. like the Total Request Live day. I have n- – I know literally nothing about this. Oh, I know who he is. He's – you know how like Luke Perry, he works at like that mechanic shop and like okay. he's like – he and there's like the dude who works at the mechanic shop, and he's like, "Man, I gotta get out of here because shit's getting weird." And the guy's like, you know, giving him shit and everything. Tom Jane is the dude in the mechanic shop. Oh God! He I, just I, had no. so much kind of like '90s goatee that we didn't recognize him. <laughs> right. Okay. So, well, like, anyway, this movie's really fucking '90s. Let's just like, it's, oh, it's so. It's 90s. like it's like, and it's also it's like early '90s, so it's like that grunge '90s. It's like late '80s. It was, I mean, it was obviously written in the '80s, and it was made in, it was released in '92, made in like '91. So Can, I mean, you can know, I just we're say, talking, Austin, that yeah. I totally buy, I totally think that if you were like, uh, you know, in your early '20s in like 1992, you definitely would have had a soul patch. Oh yeah, dude. Are you kidding me? There's no like, doubt you would have like, had a soul patch. Like Pike and, and Luke Perry's name is Pike, his little soul patch that he had. Come on, dude. Yeah. I um, feel like I feel like well actually no, let, let, let's just let's this let's start off with some broad strokes. So like Okay. Okay, when broad was the strokes, last time you saw this movie? Oh dude, I haven't seen this movie I in God, what am I? I'm thirty four. So we're talking fifteen to seventeen years. I Maybe think it's more. been a good Maybe decade more. since I saw this movie as well. Yeah, I mean, it's easily been over 10 years. I mean, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually remembered it quite well, though. Like, the oh, dude, beats I too. actually, like, remembered pretty well. But that's because I didn't just watch this once or twice. I watched this probably a dozen times, you know? See, I don't think I watched it that many times. I think I watched it, like, three or four times. But I will say, I think this is the first time I've ever watched this film post having seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show. Yeah, and it, I mean, for people that are listening that haven't seen the movie, they are very different. As a matter of fact, oh, yeah. so Joss oh, Whedon was the writer of this film, but obviously it didn't go the way that he wanted to, which is why he redeemed himself and made the TV series years later. Wanted it to be a bit more darker, um, wanted it to kind of concentrate on different types of themes, you know, uh, about a young woman in a high school going through different um, elements that weren't so comedic, that weren't so kind of pop valley girl i well, guess I think, you could say though it's interesting because the director is the executive producer of the tv show so right. clearly they weren't like they they were still on speaking terms after the film but apparently yeah. apparently joss whedon just really fucking hated donald sutherland because apparently <laughs> donald sutherland just like rewrote all his dialogue and was just a dick and was clearly like i'm above this material and wasn't like very and i think he does look like he's sleepwalking through this film i don't think he looks like he wants to be there yeah i mean who knows man he you does never look know. drunk the whole time don't you think he does look drunk the whole time i think he looks drunk like the whole time in this movie god i don't know he may have been drunk the whole time <laughs> but it's like if you think about giles did you watch buffy the vampire slay the tv show oh yeah dude yeah so you think about giles like, and you think about, like, how rich and fun and, you know, sort of funny that character is. And then you look right. at Donald Sutherland. It's just, like, night and day. It's weird, though. I don't know if the Giles character would have fit as well in the more sort of comedic and lighthearted film version. Because it was kind of nice that you have a sort of creepy, dark, I at least thought, that you have a creepy, dark Donald Sutherland mentor character in the movie that contrasts with a lot of the tone and the feel of the rest of 
of the film, whereas in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it was kind of the opposite, where you get Giles who kind of adds a little bit of levity to an otherwise rather dark series. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I do kind of, I, personally, I kind of, I, I get it may not have been what Whedon had envisioned in his mind, which is obviously one of the pitfalls of being a writer that then has to kind of relinquish his work to the creatives or to other creatives. But at the same time, um, I kind of think that they are both, they're, they're very different projects and they both kind of have their own little worlds that, that you couldn't just like replace parts with the other to kind of make the sort of perfect version, if that makes well, sense. It is interesting too, because I thought the only character to me that still feels like it's out of a Whedon script is Pike, because Pike yeah. is very, very sarcastic the whole time. He's very right. self-aware, sardonic. It's like he feels like a Whedon character, but mm. almost nobody else does. Like even Buffy doesn't really feel like a Whedon character. She feels like they've gone much like they've they've gone all in on the more kind of jokey valley girl thing right. and so she's either kind of valley girl or she's earnest there's not really a yeah. lot of kind of there's not a, there's not the sarcastic self-awareness that's that um that you had with sarah michelle geller as buffy and i wonder if that goes down more to the script or if that's more to the performer and the reason i wonder that is because obviously christy swanson has kind of disappeared of late she hasn't been doing much uh that is at least in in the popular uh in the popular um film world but where and then Sarah Michelle Gellar kind of has too, but I think that was more for personal reasons. Like she's got her family and and what. Well, she did. I, she was doing TV for a bit, and I mean that's yeah. the thing too. She was a TV actress. Um, you know, she's she ne- outside of like being in some teen movies, she never really broke into being a movie actor. Right. So like I feel like whereas like Kirsty Swanson at one point was like the next big thing. She yeah, she was. was. Yeah, yeah. Like there was this, and then the chase. Um, the chase. I actually, do you remember the chase with Charlie I remember Sheen? The chase with Charlie Sheen. I, I, all I remember about that is so she's like a little rich girl who, and he's a thief, and he like kidnaps her and takes her on a chase, and she's like his hostage. And then there's like a weird. I think they bang to, in like, the car, don't they? And then they like, bang in the car. He's driving. I remember yeah, that. They, bit. they end up like falling in love because of some weird sort of because of uh, Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, some Stockholm syndrome thing. <laughs> Oh man! But anyway, yeah, she was, she was, she was a thing. But but then when I look at Buffy and I look at her performance, you know, there are certain bits where she does emote uh, at, at the serious in the serious moments, and I think she's not she's not terrible, right? Like it's not bad. Um, but for some reason, there's a difference. Like you say, maybe it's just because there's a radical shift between the sort of like Valley Girl comedic moments and then sort of her trying to be more serious. Whereas Buffy, the series. And Sarah Michelle Gellar, it's much more continuous. There's yeah. there's less of like a, a shift, like a radical shift. And it's much more that she's serious first and then there are those moments of comedy that come in. But they don't seem like it's because she's quirky, whereas Kir- Christy Swanson's character is kind of quirky, you know? Well, and actually the funny thing too is like with the TV series is the TV series starts off with her already being the Slayer. So a lot of like right. the heavy lifting has already been done, whereas this film has to go into the whole – Oh, she's mm. kind of an airhead valley girl, and now she's been given this serious That's thing. Right. And then, so it's like yeah. it's, her conversion—it's got, sh- got a lot more of a burden to of things that has to tra- that it has to transition into. Whereas, like yeah, Buffy true. the Vampire Slayer, the series kind of just says, "Nope, she's a Slayer already," and we're just—and then it, it allows you to get into a more more complex things than her just simply saying, I do or I don't want to be the Slayer, you know. I'm right. introduced to this concept, I say yes. It's like, because this is all, if you're talking about, like, the Joseph Conrad, um, not Joseph Conrad, Joseph Campbell, um, 
you know, sort of uh, hero myth thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it's the, the, mono it's the call to arms and, you know, yeah. they refuse the, the call yeah. and all that. It's, it, it's all that. Whereas, like, the TV show, it's all of that is red. It's already been done. Yeah, so here's here's my question, and this may actually be explicitly stated. You might know. Is the TV series basically a continuation? Does Sarah Michelle Gellar actually refer back to her high school, and is that supposed to be a reference to the Christy Swanson character? No, I mean, as far of? as Joss Whedon said, uh, the TV series is basically a sequel to the original script. Um, okay. So uh, this, bu- anything that happens in continuity in this film has nothing to do with what happens in the TV series. Anything, any continuity between the two is purely accidental from the fact that this okay. film was based off of Joss Whedon's script. Okay. Um, but I mean, it, it is funny because I look at this movie and I kind of, you know, I'm kind of inclined to agree that I'm like, yeah, I don't think the people making this really got probably what the clever elements of Joss Whedon's script were and kind of just sanitized it and made it very, very bland by comparison. But actually, do you know what was, do you know what was, because I'll just, I'll just flat out say, I don't think this is a very good movie. Like it's, right, right. It, it really isn't. And we, the funny thing is I was watching with Alex and Alex was actually kind of into it, but I mm-hmm. really, I was just, I got kind of a little bit bored of it, you know? And, and okay. because I knew, because I remembered it well enough to know where it was going. There wasn't any, I was just waiting for things to happen. Right. Um, and then there's a lot of just really cringy moments in it too. <laughs> like the bit where like they, sh- they push Hillary Swank back into the wall and then she does like the cross eyed thing. Like, Oh, I've just been knocked into the wall and sort oh, of, right, yeah. Right. And then at the end, like she's doing the cartoonish kind of like, like, Oh, I've been knocked out and now I'm talking nonsense thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Okay, what the fuck is with the Paul Rubin death sequence? I love that. Okay, I was just thinking if you thought that was stupid. Where so basically, I Paul Rubin, so stupid. Paul Rubens gets stabbed, and you know, obviously, you have to stab the vampires in the heart. And Paul Rubens is the sort of second ranking bad guy, and he's you know one of the more formidable. Which is physical funny because he opponents. loses an arm yeah. about five <laughs> years before uh, Donald Logue in Blade loses an arm, and that's the running joke of that. So, and he's like one of the more formidable physical opponents that Buffy continues to run into throughout the course of the movie. And at the end, she finally gets stabbed in the heart and Rutger Hauer is playing the violin while she's dying or while he's dying. I'm sorry. But so he gets stabbed and it looks like he dies and he's going like, ee, ah, ah. Uh, and he like passes out and then he gets up again and he starts struggling and it's like this elongated death scene but it's definitely over the top it's it fake looks there's like no they left realism a blooper in the movie it looks yeah. like that thing where you know they're rolling and then somebody just decides to hey let's have a laugh and just do something as a joke and then in and the then final they, cut they're like let's and then they say oh let's leave that in the final cut <laughs> of the movie it may it may have been it may it have just, been it may, it may have been where they were like yeah paul we got we got tape for one more just have fun with it do whatever the fuck you want um who knows but yeah, it is a little cheesy and over the top. It's not a good movie, but again, the title of this podcast isn't like, hey, let's talk about the best movies. It's I No, no, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. But I, I suppose that's kind of it. Did you feel like this wave of nostalgia watching it? Yeah, of course, of course. And yeah. I still dig it. it. It's weird, and I wonder why I'm able to do this with certain films. Like certain films, I'm able to watch them and still enjoy them through the nostalgic lens. No, I, I totally whereas get other what ones, you mean. Whereas yeah, other yeah. ones don't have the staying yeah. power. And I almost wonder what are those elements that allow me to still enjoy like a film like Buffy or Blade Runner. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Bonsai Runner, not Blade Runner, Bonsai <laughs> Runner. Whereas, you know, certain films like Three Amigos I watched and I was like, oh, God, I, I was even bored from that, even yeah, though I tried yeah. my best to defend it, you know? 
Yeah. I don't I don't know what it is. Well, here's here's the thing I will <coughs> say. Yeah, I was going to say earlier and then I got distracted. But I will say I actually think Luke Perry's kind of good in this movie. <laughs> see, I, I I grew up in a household that like devoured Beverly Hills 90210. See, I, so. I have literally never watched an episode of Beverly Hills 90210 in my entire life. Oh my gosh, bro! I think this is literally. I see for years I couldn't have told you the difference between Luke Perry and Jason Priestley. I just thought oh. they were the same person. <laughs> oh, dude. Um, yeah, he was he was the it guy. He was the I'm Ryan to Gosling. Explain this to Alex too, because Alex didn't really. Alex is like five years younger than me, so like she's like almost 10 years younger than you. So it's right. like, so it's, it's like, she doesn't get at all the whole kind of like, she wasn't, she never, she never saw it. Plus she lived in Switzerland. So that Luke Perry was never a thing for her. So all I was right. trying to explain her. Like he was like the guy back the in like 1992, guy. like every like adolescent girl <laughs> had his poster on their wall. Like he was the shit. Dude. And, and but the remember, thing is too, he's yeah. kind of like, and he's 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 a bad boy in this. He's like the sort right. of grunge bad boy. He's not like he's not like a pretty guy or anything. No and then, leather and then at the jacket, end, they motorcycle. Because he, he slicks his hair back and he's got the leather jacket on. That's but right. like he's he's like he's like you know he's he's like Seattle grunge you know, but in L.A. Yeah, and I think what's great is that the guy that is supposed to be the 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 male kind of sex character sexy character is like a, a high school dropout supposedly yeah. he doesn't go to school he yeah. kind of just works in a mechanic shop but he's the guy that's the he's not the hero obviously because she's the hero but um he's the uh he's the male image that's interesting i, I don't know Dude, though, but the, when, when you were in high school though didn't you like have that girl in your class who was like 16 17 but was like dating a 25 year old guy and you were kind of like that's just skeezy man that's there's something that's just a little not right about that well see i never thought that he was that yes i did have that um a matter of fact a lot of the girls that i hung out with because i was a little bit involved in my last couple of years in like the drama and in the choir yeah. Um, and so a lot of those girls, for whatever reason, they tended to mature a little bit more than like the cheerleaders even. They were the ones that were hanging out with the college dudes. So I used to hang out with a lot of the college dudes or the dudes that had graduated in years earlier. And my high school was actually right next door to a college. And so a lot of the, the pretty high school girls or a lot of like the drama high school girls or whatever would end up dating these college guys. So yeah, I did. And I always, you know, for, from our perspective, it was more like, God damn it. Why are they always, why are they taking all the good ones? <laughs> and then I realized as I got older when I was like, oh, I get it now. Okay. I, I don't know I can, when I, I was like, but I, I definitely feel like when I was 25, like I was kind of like, I was not looking around at like 17 year old. Girls, no, no, so no. It always seemed a little bit weird to me. Well, in my country, where I come from, that shit's called statutory that rape. That shit's in illegal. Your, like, in, but see, in your fucking country. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, 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 was, that was totally legal here, you know? So, <laughs> but, I know. But oh, no, no, I will say this, I, though. I, think, I was going to say, so like the Luke Perry thing, if, we, if I can just yeah. real quick, before we, before we go on, there's like a little weird anecdote. The thing that Alex, your girlfriend, doesn't understand is that people in high school used to put up posters in their lockers of the, the, the celebrity crushes that they had, particularly girls. I don't remember guys doing this ever. I'm sure they did with like swimsuit models or something, but not as common. So I remember girls' lockers would open up and it would be 
Jonathan Taylor Thomas and oh, Bra- Jonathan Taylor and Thomas, man. JTT and Brad Renfro and they would have their binders and you know how it had like the plastic cover in their binder yeah. and they would stick like this collage of these teeny See, bop guys. See, it was Freddie Prince Junior when I was in when I See, was in high school. See, because you're because you're a couple years younger than me. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it depends. Like junior high for me was Freddie or was uh, was Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Brad Renfro and that Andrew Keegan guy. Remember Andrew Keegan? Which one was he? Uh, Google him real quick. Andrew Keegan was in a movie called Camp Nowhere that is actually one of my favorite movies when I was a little boy that stars Jonathan Jackson, who is actually, I think, a brilliant young actor who was in like Tuck Everlasting and he was on like General Hospital for a long time. And then I can't remember what he's been doing recently, but he's been doing a lot of stuff. But um, but An- Andrew Keegan was like – Oh yeah, he's in he's in Ten Things I Hate About You. Ten Things I Hate About You guy, yeah. yeah. So it was him. And then when I got into high school, it was In Sync, Backstreet Boys, Freddie Prince Jr. And then uh, and then so Luke Perry would have been more in the in between like junior high phase for me. And he was one of those guys that would have been on girls on girls binders and stuff like that. So it was just a weird cultural thing. He was he was the it guy. He was the it guy. He was like who's the it guy now? Bieber, I guess, right? I mean, like, who's the hit, it guy in television? What, like Chase Crawford or those people from fucking I, I don't the know, WB what, shows? I, I don't know, one of the stars of Riverdale. I, yeah, Riverdale. Know. Yeah, those guys, you know, those those would be the guys. Um, and this guy, he was it, man. He was it. So, I know. I, I think he is actually really apparently, good in this movie. Apparently, Andrew, Andrew Keegan has started a religion. Yeah, he actually got arrested recently for something. Something weird happened with, like... Drug use, like, because it's a religion and, you know, how they have certain state exemptions and they were using drugs or something like that. And then the cops, like, raided his facility and it's, he didn't get in big trouble or anything like that, I don't think. But, yeah, he, he started That's, some sort of, like, meditative Eastern Buddhist L.A. religion. When I, when, I, when I Googled Andrew Keegan, that was not something I was expecting to come up. <laughs> But no, I mean, I suppose that's the interesting thing, too, about these types of movies, too, is that they end up so reflecting because they're about teenagers, because they're about, you know, and they're trying to get the, you know, the young people in to watch this movie. They end up being very reflective of the time period they come out of. So it's like, but also in that weird way, it means they're really completely dated so it's like if you like showed a kid now buffy the vampire slayer and they have no reference point they're like this all looks stupid because it's like (laughs) who the fuck's that guy who looks 30 but is trying to play a 22 year old yeah that's weird that's true that is kind of weird right like he's trying to play either like a late teen or early 20s and he was clearly in his mid to late 20s remember dawson's creek was notably torn apart for that right yeah Um, yeah. that the actors were all old and that the writing was obviously far too advanced for people that were 15 and 16 years old i feel like teen movies now aren't as guilty so think of a film like me my um uh, me earl and the dying girl or like edge of 17 is i think one of the gold standards okay like teen movies yeah and so if they you look, look like at these teenagers, films, they look like teenagers. You look at a film like Project X, they're fucking teenagers, you know. Uh, so it seems like 21 and under. Is that what the film or 21 and over? Well, like, whatever the film is called. How long were they in high school for? <laughs> no, they, they did the appropriate amount of years. I think they were in high school for four years. And And so like so. Luke Perry and Jason Priestley are different people, then. <laughs> they are different people. They are different people. And then there's Brian Austin Green, who's also... He was the youngest of the cast members, I believe. You mean, and he's you mean also... star of Sharknado, Brian Austin Green? <laughs> yes, I mean um, partner of whatever her face is, Brian Austin Green. 
Uh, oh, am I? Is that of, the same one? I'm Brian what's Austin. That? Uh, his nah. Megan, whatever. God, Megan, Megan Fox. Fox. Megan Fox. Yeah, they were married for a while, and then they broke up, and I think they got back together. But yeah. No, but I've yeah. got it wrong. It's a different. It, Brian Austin Green isn't the star of Sharknado. It's a different nine hundred two one zero guy who's oh, the Steve star. Oh, Steve Zahn. Oh no, 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 no uh, not Steve Zahn. Uh, uh, Ian Z. Uh, Ian Ziering. Ian Ziering. His character's name was. Yeah, he's the blonde guy. His name's Ian Ziering. His character's name was Steve. That's why I said Steve's on. Um, oh, it's, okay. Ian Ziering. His character's name was Steve in Beverly Hills 90210. You know there's like <laughs> another Beverly Hills 90210. There's like a modern Beverly Hills 90210 now. Yeah, I watched a few episodes of it because uh, for nostalgic reasons. And it was different because it wasn't like mid-20-year-old actors. It was actually like teenagers playing teenage roles. Um, but yeah, I watched a little bit of it. And it's like, I don't, it, I don't know if it's still on though. I think it's done I, now. I think Luke Perry was in that as well with Shannon Doherty. Uh, I believe I think Jenny they came Garth, back. I think Jenny Garth was who plays the blonde girl in Beverly Hills, Manitoba. I think she was in it. Maybe, Guys, this, maybe this Shannon is so Doherty much fun too. for everyone to listen to. It's just us ponder about Beverly Hills 90210 and not talk listen, about Buffy the Vampire If you guys Vampires don't later. know what Beverly Hills 90210 is, just do a quick little Google and watch a couple episodes. You, you know how people like to go back and they do this binge watching of, you know, Buffy or something like that? Do a little binge watch of Beverly Hills 90210. It'll give you a, a culture shock. I think I think in a weird way, though, I kind of expected Luke Perry to be bad. So I was kind of because I thought he because, ha- again, he is by far the most Whedonish character in the entire film. Right. And I think that kind of made me like him more. He was kind of mm. sarcastic, sardonic, kind of like, you know, he was he was fun. And actually, yeah. weirdly, I'm not sure a lot of times like Buffy is not a very fun character in this movie. Like she's mm. like either obnoxious Valley girl or kind of like moody because she has because there's all of this pressure on her to be the slayer yeah and i just don't think like kirsty swan sorry it's christy swanson i don't think she like emotes much of a character beyond the very very basics you know what i mean it's like she's kind of like she is a blonde archetype that's obviously why she was hired but that's pretty much i don't think she ever gets beyond that and i don't know if the movie really fairly gives her much more to work with than what she does yeah. but i don't think she ever gets much beyond that just beyond being like i it's i'm a weird stereotype who, that's been subverted yeah because i think you, you actually made a really interesting point so instead of viewing in 2017 we can do this a, a sort of like reconstructive history instead of viewing buffy the vampire slayer the tv series as a sequel to the script of the film you can almost view this film as a weird prequel yeah. to to the TV series. Um, it, it, obviously, it wasn't intended that way, but I mean, you could do that from like a weird thought experiment, right? And when you do that, then you can start to see maybe why it wasn't as successful. And I think the main thing you said that was so interesting that I guess I hadn't thought about was that the TV series starts supposedly after these events, yeah. after she's already gone through the transition. Whereas what the film is trying to do is it's trying to take us into this character arc of this girl who is just trying to be a normal teenager, who's then been bestowed with this impossible role and this impossible responsibility to defend the world from vampires, and then the struggles that that entails of her no longer being allowed to be a normal teenage girl, a spoiled pretty popular teenage girl on top of that and that now she has to actually care about other people she has to have other concerns that are beyond just planning for the prom or trying to be the prom queen or being popular or whatever and that now she has to like care about humanity and so it would be it it does sound like an interesting potential for a character arc but it doesn't really kind of 
pay off as much as you would like because you don't really see the shift. You kind of do at the end that she embraces it, but you don't really see a shift. You sort of do, but I don't know. For some reason, she doesn't earn it as much as – as maybe the character in the TV series starts from. So you would like to see her kind of almost get to that point, but she doesn't quite get there. I also kind of feel like I don't feel like this film ever figures out really what it wants to be. Like, mm. I don't know if this this film ever never really feels like it's a balls-out comedy and never really feels like it's a horror film. It feels like it sits in this weird middle ground where, like, mm. sometimes its humor is so goofy and so it feels almost out of left field, but then right. other times it tries to feel like it's actually trying to be more of a, a straight horror film. It never really totally gets the tone right. And I think sure. it's interesting that this director never directed anything else. She um, ended up uh, executive producing Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show. I think she's had a lot of things that she's been involved in, but I think she's had a very successful career since this. But it doesn't doesn't ever feel like this figured out what it wanted to be. And I don't mm. know if part of that is the studio pressure. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not her fault if this, you know, because I think she was a first time director and there would have been a lot of pressure from the studio. Um, you would have had Donald Sutherland, who's a big name. Uh, Christy Swanson was pretty big at the time. You know, so these people would have had a lot of sway on what they wanted to do with it. And I'm not totally sure how much control she would have had over everything. And so, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting that this film never, to me, coalesces into what it actually wants to be, because you do feel like everyone's kind of off doing their own little thing. Like, Paul Rubens and Donald Sutherland don't feel like they're in the same film. They don't feel like mm-hmm. they're trying to, like, don't doesn't feel like everybody's pulling in the same direction trying to make something that that's cohesive. And I also don't think the director is talented enough to really tell an engaging visual story. Like it's a very blandly directed, which implies to me that she wasn't necessarily the most assertive person when it came to actually uh, managing Mm. the tone of this film. Yeah. It almost doesn't really have a tone. It's almost kind of a point and shoot type of film. Like there are a thousand of these films that have been made. And I think because of that, there's no real aesthetic fingerprint. Right? But I think I think also like I don't feel like Rutger Hauer ever feels like he is a very dangerous figure or anything. It's like there's not a lot of menace to it. Like I don't feel like the jeopardy of this film never really feels very well realized. Hmm. It's in terms of him being sort of like the the final bad guy, right? I feel in terms he's badly of... established and okay. not very well fleshed out. And I think it's one of the blandest. Rutger Hauer performances I've ever seen you know when you consider like you you think about Rutger Hauer was the fucking hitcher he's you know Roy Batty in Blade Runner like Mm -hmm. you know Rutger Hauer can play villains it is it is it is sleep he can do menacing easily but I don't think Rutger Hauer kind of knows what film he's in here like because it it feels like he, he you know he's kind of doing this almost kind of cute dandy kind of thing campy for part yeah of it. He's, he's kind of campy yeah he so, is so but his menace so there's never really feels like there's any menace and paul rubens it's hard to take him very seriously as a kind of menacing figure but it also mm. means that when she, you know she's presented at the end in this climax of there's supposed to be this big jeopardy nothing really feels like anything's really in danger plus all of the high school students are assholes so you don't really care much if they're all being sort of killed the <laughs> only people you vampires. care about are <laughs> Buffy and Pike because they're both characters who are you know they're 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 both kind of likable main characters. I will say I actually think 
the, the the relationship that probably works the best is the best sort of realized and then paid off is actually probably Pike and uh, Benny the Benny? Um, uh, David yeah. Arquette's character David Arquette, yeah because they, their their interaction has far more of an arc than almost any other character two characters in the film yeah so uh, basically Pike and Benny are both sort of lackeys they're best friends Benny gets attacked and turned into a vampire and he's been missing for like a day or something like that. Now, I will say this. When I was a younger kid, so we're talking 92 this film came out, so I was like, you know, nine years old when the movie came out, so we're talking between 10 and 12 years old is probably when I devoured this film the most, right? Um, so Benny comes back and I, he and he and Pike, like I guess are roommates or something like that, and uh, Pike is sleeping in his, in his, in his room and uh, Benny's been gone for a couple of days and he starts like tapping on the outside window of the apartment that's up on the second floor to get let in and Pike is sort of like half asleep and kind of walks over to the window to let Benny in and he's not realizing what he's doing but he's opening up the window out to the street where there's no stairs or no floor or anything like that but Benny's floating. And all of a sudden, Pike, like, realizes that he's trying to let in this floating guy. And he's like, are you on something? And Benny's like, no. And then he's like, what the hell's going on? And Benny's like, let me in, Pike. I'm hungry. And Pike's like, go home, Ben. And Benny's like, but I'm hungry. And his whining, for whatever reason, I thought was, like, the funniest fucking thing. I used to rewind that sequence over and over and over again. And I, there are certain clips that I used to do that. It was Randy Quaid in Caddyshack 2 freaking out when everything's going crazy and he's talking about how, uh, like, the lights aren't going to get turned on and someone's saying it's, it's hard to say when the lights, get turned, lights are going to get turned on. And he's like, hard to say, huh? Well, it is hard to say is, oh, my God, there's a, oh, my God, help me because there's a man. Or something like there's, like, a man with a flamethrower and he's, like, freaking out. I can't remember what the words are now. But these sequences, I rewinded over and over again for whatever reason. And I always loved the Benny Pike relationship because, I don't know, man, they just, they actually seem to be, like, good buddies and... Yeah, there is a little bit, but, at least, of an arc, you know? Yeah, I mean, Pike. I will say, like, their relationship feels more, works better than, say, any of Buffy's actual friends. Like, her, her oh, yeah. like, interactions with any of her female friends aren't particularly sort of fleshed out or anything like that. And, like, no. you know, Hillary Swank and the others are just kind of, they're one-note valley girl bitches. There's nothing and the one token, more to it. the one-token black girlfriend. The one token black girl who, in a hilarious moment, which is 1992 Hollywood, uh, Hillary Swank is like, gets grabbed. Somebody tries to like grab her or something like that. And she like, and then um, her, the, the one black friend, she like sort of like, helps her by like fighting the vampire off and then the vampire just this grabs her and pulls her out and Hillary Swank does nothing to help her. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's, that's the right. film's one black character gone. <laughs> oh Jesus, I know. But yeah, yeah, there is something nice about Pike and Benny's friendship, and uh, and and then even at the very end, uh, well, I mean spoilers all the time. But then Pike ends up uh, kind of killing Benny because Benny comes to this party where all the vampires are causing havoc and, and killing everybody. And so Pike ends up throwing him to like an electrical box, right? When I end up feeling a little bit guilty, well, oddly also, wouldn't that electrocute him? That's the thing I don't get either. Cause if you, cause he's holding on to him, electricity travels through bodies, through organic matter. He would get electrocuted as well. You just haven't bought into the story world here. <laughs> I've, I've bought into <laughs> science is what I bought into. Um, but no, I mean, 
the, I, that's the weird thing. Like thinking about it, and I, I'm, I think actually, I don't think this is a gender thing. I think it's actually comes down to what's remained. In theory, what I believe this is my conspiracy theory. What I believe is remaining from the Joss Whedon script. I, I think, like I said, I think Luke Perry is probably the Joss Whedon character. Like Pike is probably the, the Joss Whedon character that most survives intact in this final result of of the film. Mm. Um, so I think actually he's probably the most interesting character in the film. Like I, it's you because I don't think Buffy's that interesting, and I kind of think it's, so. It's it's kind of weird because I I find myself wanting to follow him rather than spend any time with Buffy. Interesting. See, I and maybe I'm just so blinded because of my childhood crush on Christy Swanson, but I did enjoy and I, I guess I, I, I guess I would say I still do. I do enjoy the journey that she goes through. Now, I don't think it's as successful as maybe it could have been. It's not written as completely as it could have been, but I still enjoy the sort of beats that she ends up taking. And you do see a little bit of her struggling and her feeling the alienation from her high school friends because of this task that she didn't choose, that she doesn't want, that she tries to run away from, but then she ultimately realizes is part of her. So you do see that a little bit. And and I do kind of come alongside her as she's going through that until the very end when it's she sort of starts to embrace it. You know, I just wish that she would we would maybe have spent a little bit more time with her having embraced mm. it. But I get it. The culmination of the of the prequel, I guess you could say, is that moment when she fully says, this is who I am. I'm no longer fighting this journey. I'm taking it on now. And now I'm living it, which is very sort of beat by beat, you know, uh, formulaic writing. My genuine thing with this, though, is that I genuinely think. She is a character. I don't think she's an actress who's sort of had some kind of lost potential that was kind of, you know, uh, that that was never realized. I'm I'm not sure she was ever a very interesting actress to begin with. That's what I don't know. I mean, because th- that's what I was wondering compared to Sarah Michelle Gellar. There's something just excessive that Sarah Michelle Gellar has that Christy Swanson maybe doesn't have. And I'm gonna say this, and it's gonna sound super shitty. But I think part of the reason is that Sarah Michelle Gellar isn't quite as pretty as Christy Swanson. Well, I don't think Christ- she's quite as kind of like Christy Swanson has that kind of, But here's that thing of like Christy Swanson, I think it's that kind of attractiveness that becomes almost bland because it's like yes. because there's yes. no idiosyncrasy to it. It's very yes. and I don't think she's someone who then overwhelms you with charisma after that either. Like, I don't think like she no, makes up exactly. for it by being like that's the thing is like. Charlize Theron is almost... Dude, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, but she's so charismatic that it kind of... Yeah. Oh, it, oh, but I've, I've also actually said, too, I've, I've tended to find Charlize Theron more interesting as she's gotten older. And I think that's part of it is because when you wear away some of that perfection, it becomes... She becomes... There's more character to it. So maybe yeah, that's but in the devil's, well. But in The Devil's Advocate, she's fucking phenomenal. Oh, she is actually great in The Devil's Advocate. Right? And fair, that yeah. was a long time ago, and she's young, and she's still kind of an ingenue yeah, at no, the time. Yeah, no, no, okay. I... I, 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 I I agree with you. Yeah, I don't know. Something Christy Swanson just never... Because think about a movie like The Chase. Yeah. You know? Again, she's playing a rich kind you of You could have stuck, you stuck Alicia Silverstone in that movie. You could have stuck any number of blonde actresses in that movie. Yeah. And I don't think, like, Christy Swanson is any... I don't think you get anything more for that. Yeah, yeah. Which doesn't mean she's bad. Again, I think yeah. she's... A decent middle of the road, but there's something that Sarah Michelle Geller has. Well, also, and I think, I think you know, part of it is too. I think it's hard for us, and this is just a, a shitty cultural symptom. It's hard for us to feel sorry for 
um, people who are beautiful a lot of times. Yeah. We need, you know, we, we need to see weakness or we need to see frailty. And a lot of times we don't get that. I think with Sarah Michelle Gellar, the thing is, is she's so tiny and she's so little that you really felt like when she's fighting these vampires that she could get fucked up. And even though Christy Swanson is a woman, she's still, I mean, it's not like she's as sort of little and as demure as Sarah Michelle Gellar is in just her physical stature. Well, I mean, so maybe also, that's part of it too. Well, also the other thing too is it's just simply that thing of mm, Sarah Michelle Gellar had seven years playing a character where there right. was all sorts of time to build in all sorts of interesting textures and, you know, right, concepts right. within it. And I, and I will say that's part of the problem watching this movie. I mean, and it's not fair on the movie, but it's a simple reality. You know, I yeah. really liked Buffy. I watched it for, I, I watched all seven seasons of it. Yep. So when I sit here and I look at all of the, I look at all of these, um, these characters, I'm kind of like, it, it's hard for me to not think of their equivalent in the TV show and sort of say, well, that I means like even like, so you take the character of Buffy's mom in the movie. She's a, a, a dull one note kind of Valley girl mom. Who's like not very interested in her daughter and there's not much mm. to her. Whereas like Buffy's mom had a lot more degree. There's a lot more to her in the TV show. Again, mm. like you think about Buffy's friends in this, who are of course the cheerleaders, but even like, what was her name? Um, the uh, the sort of bimbo ish character in Buffy, um, oh, Corn- uh, Cor- Cornelia, Cor- Cors- Cordelia, Cordelia, Cordelia. That's it. She, you know, there was more to her than say Charisma like Carpenter her. was the actor, yeah. I think. Um, and then like you know, so I mean, I, I, well, you know, I think the difference is this: is in the, I mean, this is obviously one of the differences in the television series, and this is much more. Um, I guess something that is required in television than in film too. Oftentimes, is that the amount of characters that were well-written that fleshed out the story are are so much greater and they're, they're written to such a greater depth in the series than in the film that it makes the series so much more enjoyable. And you have to do that because if you're going to write for seven seasons, 20-something episodes for seven seasons, you have to have more than just a simple single character arc that you get in most, in yeah. most you know, uh, motion pictures. Um, and so in the TV series, you have all of these characters surrounding Buffy. You've got um, – I can't remember, but you've got the Allison Hannigan characters, Willow, uh, I think was her name. You've got the guy that was their buddy. I can't remember his name. You've got Giles' Xander. character. Xander. That's right. Yeah. Xander. You've got Giles. You've got, uh, you've got Spike, who was an interesting bad guy. Then, of course, you've got Angel, who got his own fucking spinoff um, and launched him into be a fucking celebrity. Um, you've got um, – when the other vampire slayer comes in – God, what was her name? Uh, Faith? Uh, Faith, yeah, yeah. When then Faith you, comes then, in, then you had um, you had uh, then they one of the most amazing bits of uh of uh what would he, retconning ever when Buffy got a sister. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so you've got you've got that. Um, uh, obviously, we talked about Cordelia. So you've got all of these memorable characters that each in the, their own right added something really sort of dynamic and important to the overall series that you know, that the movie just doesn't have, you know, like, yeah, okay, it's got a nice little relationship between Pike and Benny, Luke Perry and David Arquette's characters, but eh, and then of course you talk about Rutger Hauer and then the Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubin's character, but they're not developed enough over a course of an hour and 30 minute movie to kind of create the same level of dramatic import that 
obviously we come to recognize in the TV series. So it's not going to be as successful. It's much more superficial. It's much more shallow is basically what I'm saying. Honestly, I, I got to say, do you know what the thing I most remember Kirsty Swanson for outside of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Uh, eight Heads in a Duffel Bag? No, uh, the fact that she posed for Playboy in like 2001. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That's, that's um, what I remember. Can I tell you another movie that she was in that I absolutely loved? Uh, she was in she was in Mannequin Two. That was what sequel. I was about to ask you. I was about to ask you, uh, were you, you you must know that she's the lead of Mannequin Two on the move. Oh, oh I do know. Um, Mannequin Two was another one of my favorite movies when I was younger. <laughs> you and fucking Mannequin, bro. The original Mannequin is so good. Um, but yeah, but then, um, but no, I mean, like she kind of like. Oh, the other thing, the only other thing I can remember watching her in is um, she's in Higher Learning, which is like was like John Singleton's, uh, you know, um, back when John Singleton was tr- still trying to be a serious filmmaker, and right. like it's all set in like a university, and it's like a bunch of different stories, and she's this girl who gets Gosh. raped at a frat house. Um, I remember the name. Uh, yeah, it's like Michael Rappaport plays like uh, a guy who gets beat up by some black guys and then ends up becoming a neo-Nazi. Um, and then Ice Cube is like this guy who just hangs out. He's like Van Wilder, but like a black dude who smokes a lot of weed and reads a okay. lot of books. Huh. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 not a good movie, but I just remember her from mm. that. And then and then she like and, you know, it's kind of like and then she was in The Phantom that disastrous attempt to uh capitalize off of the uh <gasps> with billy zane with billy zane off the uh, attempt to capitalize off the star status of billy zane oh dude um, i i loved that movie <laughs> and then yeah and then after that you got her in like she's like a bit part in big daddy she's got a big part in dude oh that's a bit, right a bit she, part in dude where's my car it's like big she, daddy she yeah. plays the friends um fiance or whatever no right? no no no. she plays the girl oh, his ex his ex his ex yeah his know, ex who ends Adam up Sanders working ex. at hooters who oh, that's right yeah, yeah that's right no it's it's like i don't know man. Les- leslie mann pay, plays john stewart's girl yeah yeah okay. yeah no it's it's yeah i mean like i again like i think like i don't think she's bad i just don't think there was ever much to her i think she is like i mean I, essentially i think she's a and I, I know this sounds mean because I was complimenting it, but I think she is a female Luke Perry. She's like a person who mm. was kind of hot at the time, but there wasn't enough interesting about her to kind of like keep her around. Like she never, right. she never got beyond just simply being that teen idol type thing or that sort of pinup type person. Right. So, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think from, and I don't mean to treat humans like just component parts to an investment scheme, but really let's think about it from a producer's perspective. What you do is you take a risk on these young, talented individuals that are coming up and you invest in them. And sometimes when you invest in them, they kind of mature into these long-term investment properties that you can continue to, you know, cash out on like a Leonardo DiCaprio. And then sometimes, you know, you can make a little bit of money from them and they produce a little bit. And then for some reason, the investment just doesn't kind of continue to stimulate a, a good enough return. And that's what happens with Christie. And, and I don't know why it is. And it could be for a bunch of different reasons. But for some reason, just her capital investment, her rate of return of investment just kind of slowed down for whatever reason. And it is interesting that someone like Luke Perry, because see, I kind of would have thought that Luke Perry would have had something a little bit more than that because the intensity with which he was famous was so uh, was so was so hot, you know. Like there was such a great intensity. Like sometimes people are famous and and they're just like 
they're just there all the time and they're always famous. And then sometimes it's like the magnitude is through the roof. And he was like one of those people that had like a crazy magnitude of fame. So but it's, it's like crazy. it's like that thing, though, of like at a certain I mean, it's one of the things that I've always thought was really smart about Brad Pitt was Brad Pitt figured out that he needed to go be in films that were worthwhile, that he couldn't just sort of ride off of the star status of being like a detractive guy. He needed to actually right. go and do work. So as much as like Brad Pitt became like a huge icon for like that whole bit in Thelma and Louise where, you know, he takes his shirt <laughs> off and he's really sexy right. and that's a star making thing. If he hadn't gone and done stuff like shown up in true romance as a sort of goofy stoner or hadn't like gone out to try and be in things like seven and stuff like that, then he wouldn't right. have like he never would have survived. I mean, again, Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, him and Scorsese essentially formed a bond that allowed, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio to have a career and Scorsese to keep getting funding for films. You know, it's mm. it's like you can't just be a hot property. You have to figure out how to maintain that. Because, again, look at Taylor Lautner. Taylor Lautner is a perfect example. You mm. compare Taylor Lautner to Robert Pattinson. It's like their yeah. two careers di diverge into completely different directions because Robert Pattinson has gone out and tried to find interesting projects and interesting filmmakers to work with and maintain some kind of, you know, yeah. um, some kind of importance as a figure in the film industry. Whereas Taylor Lautner, he just tried to cash in on a bunch of like big name action films. They flopped and then his career was done. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that is, that's interesting how that happens. But yeah. yeah. So I think, I think we can say without a doubt that I don't think, I, I don't think like Buffy the Vampire Slayers may be a film that you can just sort of like jump into without any sort of like, context of like the time period and stuff like that i mean it's fun on a sort of nostalgic basis for that reason but i think if you just mm -hmm. caught this randomly on tv you'd be like wow this isn't a very good movie i don't know i think a lot of people would actually really enjoy it if they mm -hmm. did just stumble across it like if it came out on netflix or if it was showing around the holiday season and it just so happened to be on like i think a lot of people like i'm trying to think like if my girl we're sitting at home with some of her girlfriends. Sometimes she'll send me a message, like if she's like drinking wine with a couple of her friends, she'll be like, "Hey, do you have any movie recommendations on Netflix right now?" If she and her friends were sitting around and they just like happened to catch this, I think they would actually really enjoy it. Even if it wasn't like they enjoy it in the same way that people enjoy Blade Runner twenty forty nine, they would get some sort of entertainment yeah. value out of it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think like that's the thing is it's not it's not horrible, it's not great, but it's kind of it's kind of amusingly goofy. It's kind of like, I, I don't yeah, really yeah. quite, quite know how to explain it, but I suppose you could spend a worse 90 minutes than watching That's this right. film. It's not just mediocre. It's mediocre plus. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Stab him in the heart. Christy Swanson. I am so sure. Donald Sutherland. Ah, ah. Paul Rubens. Ah. With Rutger Hauer and Luke Perry. Buffy. You're not like other girls. Yes, I am. Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. You didn't even break a nail. Directed by Fran Rubel Kazooie. Okay, so, Austin. Yeah, but. It's Judgment Day. Next week is the final round of World War film. And goddamn, we're never doing five rounds again because this was just way too much. Like, 
Like this is this is, this was this was a fucking mistake. I'm 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 tired of this. We need to move on. So this is the final round. And what have you got in store for us? Because there's only one film left. Uh, I've changed my choice. I'm going with Battle of Algier. No, you're not. <laughs> uh, Fahrenheit 451. Which yeah, is representing which country? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> France. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you're in trouble, man, because I brought out the big guns. I've been saving this for last. It is the classic Michael Caine's debut as an actor, Zulu. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, seriously, this is like one of my dad's like favorite films. Like uh, okay. uh, when I, gr- I I watched this film like a whole bunch growing up. So I I've mean, never seen it. Am I going to watch this? And is it like super racist? No, no, no. Actually, like it like involved the Zulus themselves. Like there's actually See, I have like, a feeling the actual, gonna be a lot like, of descendant of the Zulu king, who's like the current uh, was the Zulu king at the time. Like he's actually in the film. Like it was like right. a uh, you know. It's actually I think it's very re- respectful of the Zulus, unless you think purely representing uh, you know um, colonial powers fighting a um, fighting a native force automatically becomes racist just by existing. But well, I think actually that I'm I, behind I think it's quite respectful to, of the Zulus. Considering I'm behind and I need to figure out any way to win, I'm going to be looking for any racist elements that I can find <laughs> just so that I can lower down the point. There's black people and it is racist. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. Yep. So uh, that is what we will be doing next week. Uh, two films that nobody ever thought would be said in the same sentence, but here they are. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 by Francois Truffaut and uh, Zulu by Cy Enfield. So, yeah, that's what we're doing next week. So... In the meantime, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes if you have not. Uh, consider writing us a review because that's always very useful. Um, yes, please uh, get in touch with us via our website, idigthismovie.com. And uh, in the meantime, um, you can find any of my work at kiersewitt.com. And um, yeah, uh, Austin, anything else you want to share? No, my social media activity has kind of grinded to a halt because I'm kind of bored of social media. So you can follow me if you want, but I'm inactive. Austin underscore Hayden on Twitter. I uh, don't really do Instagram. You can friend me on Facebook. How's that? Austin Hayden Smith. Uh, okay, and uh, join us next week for Zulu versus Fahrenheit 451.